Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we just had the last debate before the Iowa caucuses. You'll all make your own determination, but my view is there was nothing that happened there that's probably going to cause a groundswell to any candidate, and there's probably nothing that's going to cause deep erosion. So I think we just march on, and I think what's really going to matter is how these candidates close on the ground in Iowa, where they'll all be seeing bigger crowds and people who are making their decisions on the spot about whether they're going to caucus for one of these candidates. Big complication, obviously, is the impeachment trial for Senators Sanders, Warren, and Klobuchar. They're going to spend a portion of the closing time in Iowa in Washington. Um, and so they're going to be, I think, disadvantaged. They'll find every way possible to to reach voters there through teletown halls and appearing on media and live streams, but it's not the same as being in person. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we'll have to assess what impact that had. But I do think that's an advantage for Vice President Biden and Mayor Pete uh, Buttigieg, who will probably have more events and, and see more people. And if they perform well, uh, perhaps they'll be able to close the sale with less competition. So that bears very, very, very close watching. The other thing that's interesting, saw Donald Trump do a rally in Wisconsin, on the same day as the Democratic debate. Reports are he's going to do some rallies close uh, to the Iowa caucuses. So, you know, the general election has begun. Uh, I've talked on this program about the spending that the Trump campaign's doing uh, largely digitally, all the data work they're doing, all the offline organizing work they're doing. But I think we're going to see uh, Donald Trump himself more and more engage and, you know, try and define the field. And once we get down to one or two candidates, trying to find them even more specifically uh, to give himself, uh, you know, an advantage to the extent he can build one on that really important definitional battle that is is so critical to presidential campaigns, defining yourself and your opponent and what the race is about. So, um, you know, I think that brings me to when are we going to know what our nominee is going to be? And the truth is we have no earthly idea when that will be. But, you know, my sense is we may see somebody by the end of the middle of March, so between March 3rd and, and March 17th in those two weeks, most of the country votes and most of the delegates are going to be allocated. Uh, and if a candidate has, you know, been able to build an advantage, then I, I doubt it'll be a huge advantage. I doubt it'll be someone who's on the road to getting a majority of the delegates, but somebody who's a clear leader who's going to probably end with a plurality of the delegates. I'd like to see the general election start then, but but candidates are going to have to make their own determination. But I, I think just given the stakes of this election and the fear that Trump could win a second term, um, I think you may see candidates under some pressure uh, or maybe not pressure, maybe of their own volition, uh, decide at the end of the day that uh, if even if they can keep raising money and they have grassroots support and you always want to run through the tape for your supporters later in the calendar who've worked so hard for you. But if there's no delegate path, 
hopefully you'll see some candidates, you know, make a determination. Uh, my guest today um, was not on the stage. Um, he's running the campaign for Andrew Yang, who for the first time was not on the debate stage, somebody who clearly is going to continue to be able to raise money, uh, has the passion and support of those called uh, the Yang Gang all around the country. Uh, and so I think for Andrew Yang, the question will be, even with the remarkable achievements that he has really been able to put forward in this campaign. No one thought he would be anywhere near where he is today in terms of fundraising, in terms of grassroots organization. Uh, they've gotten on the ballot uh, in all the states and territories, which is a huge uh, challenge organizationally. Um, so they, by every you know measure, they have exceeded expectations wildly. But, you know, if he comes in fifth or sixth in Iowa and fifth or sixth in New Hampshire uh, and just doesn't put together the votes and caucus attenders, uh, is there a path for him? But they clearly believe that something's building for them in Iowa. They were at 5% in the last Des Moines Register poll. Uh, they really believe, and, you know, there's some polling to indicate that, that maybe there could be some pathway for Yang to do quite well in New Hampshire. So I'm really excited to have on his campaign manager today, Zach Grauman, who, like Andrew Yang, comes from a very unconventional background. So Yang has never run for office, much less been in politics. Now he's running for president. Uh, Zach Rauman, uh, other than some volunteer work in a local uh, DA's race in North Carolina, has been an entrepreneur, someone who's worked in the nonprofit sector. So I'm really eager to hear from Zach about how they built the really powerful campaign they have to date. Uh, and as things get real here, and as we begin to see uh, votes being cast and caucuses executed, uh, what is their plan going forward to not just be a feel-good story, but potentially have the ability to be in the conversation as we get out of South Carolina and head into March. So I, I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Andrew Yang's campaign manager, Zach Rauman. Zach Rauman, campaign manager for Andrew Yang. Thanks for joining Campaign HQ today. Thank you for having me, David. It's good to be here. And you're joining us from Iowa. So let's start there. I got a lot I want to talk to you about the race more generally. But, you know, we're, we're basically um, less than three weeks out from Iowa when this podcast airs. You guys just had a nice bump in, in the gold standard poll in Iowa, the Des Moines Register, going up to five. Talk about where you see Iowa today. And for Andrew Yang to have the best outcome on caucus night on February 3rd, what's the strategy you guys are deploying over the next you know, couple of weeks to make sure that happens? So it's a fair question. Here's what I'll say. I think the real question is this. How the heck is Andrew Yang still in this race when senators and governors and some of the deepest field the Democratic Party has seen in history, in, in least modern history, um, how is he still here? And not only here, to your point, the Des Moines Register poll thriving in Iowa as a serious contender for president of the United States and just raised $16.5 million in the last quarter. And it ties into our Iowa strategy. Our strategy has been the same. Um, the biggest two things we've been doing is, one, we've had a really powerful message, and two, we've realized the game has changed. We're not just trying to be good. We're trying to be different and stand out. So you got to think, like, Andrew literally came from, I mean, think about what this guy came from, like, no money, no political connections, no experience, no email list, no deep roster endorsements, but he had a really powerful message, and very, very conscious of why Donald Trump won is that the country's in crisis um, and very focused on why he's president and that the traditional gatekeepers in presidential politics have, have changed or been flipped on their head and we're playing to those strengths. So in Iowa, it's essential for um, 
I think it's essential for any campaign. I think people trying to avoid Iowa don't traditionally have success. Um, so we're here a lot. We've been very much focused on getting our Yang gang here and organizing here. I can dive in deeper, but I would say for an outsider like Andrew to prove he's real and prove he can play with the big boys and girls, it's a key state for us. And it's literally why I'm <laughs> I'm dialing in from, from Des Moines, David. Right. So I want to get to the money and your endurance, all of which uh, quite a remarkable feat. But I do want to spend a little bit more time on Iowa just because, you know, that's the first real gate. And I think you guys are in a little different situation where since you started, you know, you've defied every expectation, right? So it's not like you were a front runner and you stumble and come in third. Like, you know, I think you you probably have different requirements in Iowa. But, I mean, do you think that you clearly going to have financial staying power, at least for a while. But, you know, are you? do you think you need to break into the top five in Iowa? You know, I know you guys think you've got something interesting going in New Hampshire, but how do you guys think about that? I know you're just trying to find as many caucus attenders as possible and kind of let the chips fall where they may. But when you guys think about what's the ideal scenario for you, you know, kind of bouncing out of Iowa into New Hampshire, how do you assess that? Right. So you look at that, and I hate looking at individual polls, but if you're going to break one down, that the DMR is probably the gold standard of Iowa caucuses. Yeah, that poll had us in sixth with not only growth but then room to grow. So you're looking at our favorabilities at 61, 25, positive, negative. Some of the highest favorabilities in the field. 29% of caucus goers are seriously considering us for president of the United States, and that's tied for first, I believe, with Bernie. We are playing, we're spending a large chunk of our resources in Iowa. So I agree with you. I think top five is a very realistic finish for us in our goal. And I think we can do well, um, given where we are. I think, as you know, with Iowa, the 15% threshold, it's going to be wild. Um, so I think trying to say we know who's going to win now is, is not fair. There's a long time to go. But also, you're going to see many of the front runners with this traffic jam up top not be viable in certain precincts and and even counties. Um, so I think we can play where we can play and glow certain areas of the state for Andrew Yang on caucus night. That's how we're looking at it. I think we can um, demonstrate to the country and to, to Iowans and, and everybody watching that we are a serious contender to take this thing and show growth coming out of the state. I don't think, and you know this better than anybody, David, I think the traditional mindset is there's sometimes, you know, let's say three tickets out of Iowa. There's going to be more. I think there'll be more than that given the crowded field, but also what's coming out, right? So you're going to have your state delegate equivalents, but also you'll have first and second choice preferences coming out of Iowa. So there will be a number of narratives coming out of the state. I'd say three things for us in Iowa. One, how we're tackling this. We've got one of the most exciting part of American politics right now is the Yang Gang. So we've got the Yang Gang there distributing organizing. In addition to our over 100 staff and number of offices there, we've got volunteers coming from all over the country. We knocked on 50,000 doors last week so we can play the retail politics game really well and at an effective cost. Um, we can play where we can play and we can glow certain areas of the state. And I think the last thing for us is we, we call ourselves the math campaign. Like we are hyper-targeting. Um, we know our conversion rate for people who come listen to him speak and we play the numbers well. So those, but yeah, I mean, I'd be lying to you. No one can say that I was not important. It's it's the, the gatekeeper here. Right. Or know what's going to happen. So Zach, so you mentioned the Yang gang. I think for those that are following the race, you know, even somewhat closely, you know, they, they think the Yang gang is, 
He's got a lot of energy around the country. People donate online. But you you just talked about the Yang Gang as it relates to Iowa. So so go a little deeper there. What what does the Yang Gang mean in Iowa? And and just it sounds like what you guys are hoping to do. Now, of course, you're making your pitch to traditional caucus attenders, but if turnout really does go north of 250,000, which a lot of people seem to think it will, could be quite a bit north of that. You know, a, a lot of this is going to depend on who's actually able to to find and turn out folks that are kind of off the radar a little bit, right? That, that maybe the other campaigns aren't working or people who haven't. So, so talk about how those two things merge, the Yang Gang and you guys surprising people with a bunch of people that, that folks don't think are caucus possibilities. I think this has been fun. Like you go, and let's just, I'll, I'll start just outside of Iowa and the Yang Gang. Like if you go to an Andrew Yang event, especially in the early days, you say, and it's, you know, thousands of people, and you say, raise your hand if this is the first political campaign you've ever been involved with or first political candidate you've ever donated to. And it's, it's no joke, David. It's 80, 90 percent of hands go up. You can ask any Democratic county chair in Iowa, New Hampshire, and say and ask him what happened when Andrew Yang came to them. Every single one of the same reactions that they all said, who are all these people? Record turnouts for them in these little counties. So we are turning out a different type of person. I guess like on the Yang Gang, like one of the things we knew um, and then I'll get to how it applies in Iowa. Is like one of the things we knew going out the gate was we needed to build an army, right? Like we needed, we weren't going to have your traditional media support. Um, we needed to build this grassroots army. And one of the things we did early on was what I, I call it like identity branding, where, and Trump is the master at this. And I think it's one thing I hope Democrats start doing, not just in presidential politics, but up and down the ballot, Senate seats and Congress seats and even state rep seats is helping your supporters feel like they're part of your message, the identity piece of it. So instead of, you know, what are you like basically giving it some, something to call it that you're tied to. So instead of calling it Andrew's army or team Andrew or whatever politicians use, if you think about Trump, he said, People would say, who are you voting for in the Republican primary? It'd be Cruz, or I'm voting for John Kasich. People would say, I'm MAGA. I'll make America great again. And it's this visceral reaction that you're part of. And so for us, we didn't want Team Andrew. We didn't want Andrew's Army. We didn't want, I'm voting for Andrew Yang. We wanted, oh, I'm Yang Gang. Um, and owning that and building that community around it. And so when you build that, you it's not about a money thing. It's a passion thing. And you empower your people um, as you foster that and grow that community, you empower these people to spread your message and be that ambassador. And in a world where the public doesn't trust their institutions, um, there's so much noise out there, and you trust your peers, you get your information from your friends and family, the Yang Gang becomes a very, very powerful force. And so we were able, last week alone, to bring, I think it was over 500 Yang Gang members into the state to knock on doors and Canvas and phone bank and text bank. And that's worth something. That's worth a lot. And so we think based on turnout in Iowa, frankly, no matter how that cookie crumbles, we feel pretty good. If it's high turnout, we're probably a huge part of it. If it's low turnout, we know our people are going to show up. And we have some of the, by the numbers, some of the stickiest support there. And the one thing I will say, David, that I'm most excited about is that the Yang Gang is growing in terms of who's in it. Um, and one of the things I've noticed, we just finished a- You mean demographically or? Demographically, yes. Um, so one of the things we realized, so I just finished a, 
we did a basically a 15 stop tour in southeastern Iowa, and then we did about 18 or 19 stops over five days in New Hampshire. And the crowds are not who you traditionally expect to be in the Yang Gang, which is that younger, diverse outsider, like first time involved in politics. But you've got a room full of professional voters, you know, where there's gray hair. Um, people can actively considering a variety of other candidates who always caucus or always vote in the primaries. So that is that's what's most exciting is the Yang Gang is is broadening and being a you know showing the power of the message when it hits voters of all ages and, and backgrounds. Right. So let's say well it almost you know maybe the Yang Gang um, does all you hope and you have just a sterling awesome you know surprisingly um, strong finish in Iowa. You know, maybe you do well, you know, but it's, you know, there are some candidates who who ultimately made, you know, we just had Senator Booker, you know, drop out um, this week. We may have others drop out the night of Iowa. It, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like kind of no matter what happens in Iowa, you guys are moving on. Yeah. And so, you know, talk about the other three states. You know, you've got New Hampshire, then you've got Nevada, South Carolina. And I do think even as unconventional a campaign as you guys have been able to build in terms of support and, and financial strength, you know, you have to do well enough, at least coming out of South Carolina, I think, to earn the right to go on. I mean, folks can decide to run, but, right. you know, they don't have any delegate paths. So so how do you guys look at each of those three states? Um, you know, clearly you're deploying the Yang Gang, whether directly or organically in all those states, but, but how are you building your coalition so that you can... You know, Andrew's spending a lot of time on the ground in Iowa. Sounds like you guys are spending a lot of time in New Hampshire. You'll be able to do less of that in Nevada, less of that in South Carolina. We'll get to the March states later, which, you know, kind of turns into a national primary. So just walk me through your strategy for those next three states and kind of where you hope to find yourself when you exit South Carolina. So coming out of Iowa, if we can outperform there, I think we can continue that growth and continue to outperform in New Hampshire. Um, We love New Hampshire. Our polls... We think the polls you see are not capturing all the momentum and people who will vote for Andrew Yang there, mainly because it's an open primary. You've got independents, Republicans, libertarians, people never voted before, easy to vote for in New Hampshire and very interested in Andrew's message. There's a lot of libertarians that love universal basic income, the freedom dividend. So it's been a good state for us out the beginning, out the gate. And with some, it's also a movement state, as you, you likely know. So seeing some momentum out of Iowa, we think we can create a narrative that that pushed us up in New Hampshire. Heading to Nevada, South Carolina, um, those are actually pretty good states for us right now. I mean, in terms of growth and what we've seen, exclude. I don't, I don't like to do, you know, you like to look at trends in polls. And I don't think, um, so I didn't love the Fox poll in terms of its number, but the trends for most of the polls in Nevada, South Carolina have been good for us and plus some internal polling. But Nevada, caucus state, so it plays well to passion passionate people. There's a large AAPI community. And what's hit the most by automation is hospitality. So some like the message about the fourth industrial revolution hits hospitality workers and casinos and hotels and restaurants in Las Vegas hits very, very hard. So strong movement there. We'll see. We think Nevada is a very strong state for us, which would propel us into South Carolina. South Carolina, I think the challenge we have in South Carolina that everybody has in South Carolina is most it's more of a regular state, right, where the, the voters are not like New Hampshire or Iowa, where they're super focused on the primary. So a lot of people do not know of Andrew Yang. But I think we were at 4% there and growing in a, in a poll recently. We, f- we have a really good team in South Carolina. So I see, I see movement that can carry us into California in both Nevada and South Carolina. And California is a, a very good state for Andrew Yang. There's a tech community. There's an Asian community. 
Um, I think CNN has a 6% there and growing. Uh, in the last poll I saw. So look, I'll say this, look, we're in single digits and all this. I'm not, um, I'm not a fool here, but I will say the groundwork is laid for, if you see movement in Iowa, New Hampshire for Andrew Yang, you could see the groundwork for him to play with a strong contingency into contention in all of these states. And that's the type of thing someone, an outsider, new candidate would actually need. So we're setting the groundwork to play in all these states. We're on every ballot. So that is, uh, Frank, and you know this, David, one of the hardest parts of running for president is getting on the ballot, particularly if you're not a politician or not a political insider. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. It's one of the things I'm so proud of our team that we actually been able to get the signatures and follow the rules here. But yeah, we, we see a... Um, there's a path, albeit a narrow path for Andrew Yang, but we've um, it exists. It's very, very clear to us. Right. So yeah, no, getting on the ballot is is no small feat, and I assume it was the passionate, you know, work of all those Yang gangers out there who made it happen. They're very good at. Yeah. So um, you know, you don't have any control over this, and I've asked some of your fellow managers this question as well, um, and it's something you don't control. But so much of this is going to be sort of who's alive. So if you guys are actually alive post-South Carolina, like in a real way, like where you can still plausibly say you think you have a path to the nomination. You know, kind of who's standing there with you is so important, right? W- w- what does that group look like, you know? And you you don't have any control over it, but do you, when you think about that, I mean, is it important that, you know, Mayor Pete not be there? Or is it important that, you know, Sanders is weakened because that opens up more opportunity with you as some of the younger voters that may be with him now? I, I know you have, you're just focused on Iowa, the next three states, but as you think about that, you know, maybe it's three o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep. Like, what (laughs) does that ideal array look like knowing that you've also got sort of Bloomberg looming out there ready to make his case? So we definitely don't sleep, David. That's true. Um, (laughs) And that that goes to the whole team. (laughs) You know, I, you know, playing those out, you play it in your head, but you um, trying to predict that or even anticipate that too much is usually a futile exercise. I think uh, if you look at the data and you start looking at people's second and third choices, you see Andrew Yang pop up um, in places you wouldn't expect him, which is exciting for us. You know, I think Andrew and our message, you know, the message of why Donald Trump won the election, it wasn't because of immigrants. It wasn't because of this cocktail of reasons the media gives us. It's because we're Automating away all the jobs and we're going through this fourth industrial revolution and it's going to get worse. This message and Andrew as the messenger resonates with a number of candidates. So we feel good no matter how this field shakes up um, in this path as long as we stick around um, and, and show growth. So if it's for Bernie supporters, you know, they love the fact that Andrew's an outsider, right? And very, very laser focused on his mission um, and helping the working class. For Pete, it's this new face, right? It's younger generation, new approach to problems for Biden. It's this, it's kind of the focus resonating on the working class in Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, those things. And and frankly, the focus on how to beat Donald Trump. Um, we've seen a lot. And then for Warren, of course, it's the plans and ideas, which Andrew is definitely an ideas guy. So I don't want to give you the hack answer, but I, I really do feel that no matter how this field shakes out, there's a number of supporters that find a home and find a liking to Andrew Yang, and the, the favorabilities and the numbers play that out. So a lot of people are really interested in Andrew Yang's ideas and in Andrew Yang as president. I want to get the ideas in a minute. So what's fascinating, I, I assume, for you is, you know, probably wasn't too long ago where you're thinking, like, how on earth are we going to have the organization and the money to actually just get through Iowa, much less the next three? <laughs> now you're blessed with 
um, the kind of financial strength and durability, I would imagine, and, you know, the Yang gangs growing. So in all 50 states and, and I assume the territories, you know, you've got grassroots supporters who can kind of make magic happen on the ground like the ballot. So how are you guys approaching March uh, and April as you think about, you know, the rest of the country voting, most of the delegates being awarded? A lot of those states vote early, so they're going to start voting in, in February. Talk about what you're putting together. And again, what's what's interesting to me is that you you probably had ideas and plans, but you, you weren't sure you'd have the ability to resource them. Now it seems like you probably have the ability to maybe not resource everything you'd like to do, but you know enough of it to you know to be ready to to take advantage of uh, you know if lightning strikes for you. Absolutely, I think one of the best parts of building the Yang Gang has been we have infrastructure and people and places on the ground in every state, even states that are completely irrelevant to Super Tuesday, right? Which I still love you, Yang Gang, if you guys are listening. Um, we love you there too. But to be able to plug in and be adaptive as this field shakes out. So to bring in our HQ staff or bring in parts of the Iowa team, parts of the New Hampshire team into California, into Colorado, into states we think we can play. And frankly, it's I'd say it's flexibility, right? Um, because to your point, David, we don't know. Are four people, seven people like going to be sticking around through Super Tuesdays? Probably not seven, but it might be It might be three or four. Um, so if that's your Super Tuesday play, then you're trying to see who's getting to 50% in these states. You're going to have to pick and choose. And then the other things that Yang Yang, they're, they're people. Um, so there are people in states that maybe not be relevant, but they're willing to travel and they're willing to knock on doors and they're willing to help organize across state lines. So we have this not only financial fluidity, but also personnel fluidity with the Yang Gang. So our, and we anticipate, depending on our plan and who's there, to be able to organize our volunteers and our supporters in the states we think we can, pay, we can play in based on who's left. So it's vague because I can't show you my hand, but um, we feel pretty good about our ability to maneuver um, depending how the chips fall in the first four states. Right. You mentioned, so uh, obviously Andrew Yang's uh, got, you know, not just one big idea, but the, the idea that gets the most coverage and attention is is the freedom dividend, the universal basic income. But I also, you know, beyond that remedy, you know, he's he seems to be running a much different race from a message standpoint than the rest of the field, right? I, I, you know, the rest of the field has some really great ideas, I think some innovative ideas, but more incremental. I mean, I think Andrew Yang's basically saying, things aren't necessarily going to get better, you know, for a lot of the country. Um, we've got all these challenges economically. We have to understand that. So we need approaches and remedies that understand this isn't just like a one or two better government programs, like something fundamental is happening here. And I, I think there's always a, a belief in politics sometimes, sadly, that you can't be honest with people, you know, that, that the truth may be too hard for people to hear. But it seems like one of the reasons he's resonating it's not just the remedy, the universal basic income, but it's that he's being honest, whether he's right or not, we'll see, but but he's being honest about what he thinks the degree of the challenge is. Uh, and he's not, you know, being defeatist about it. He's saying we're, we're America, we can figure it out, but we have to be honest about that this is going to be really hard, that it's a unique challenge. Um, so I'm just, you spent a lot of time yourself out on the road with him. Talk a little bit about that, because I think in the very beginning, people, I think, uh, leaving aside the fact that he was coming from nowhere, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> right. so even if he was, you know, a long-term politician, I think a lot of people saying, you know, what he's selling, 
you know, I'm not sure people would be willing to buy, but it seems like, you know, you guys have definitely uh, tapped into something here. So I'd love to, for you to, to spend a little time diagnosing that as best you can. Yeah, I think, so he's so honest. Um, his, he jokes, like Evelyn, his wife said you would, he, she always jokes, you'd be a terrible politician because you, you're not good at lying ever. And it's one of the reasons re- people really like him. They feel like he's human. And there was a survey, you know, when we were first starting, I was looking at data and how do we peel and find our niche to start and grow. And there was a survey to younger voters and they asked him, you know, what's the number one trait you care about in people and what you're looking for in brands and celebrities and things like that. And the biggest one was authenticity. So the younger generation can smell nonsense. They smell the BS um, faster and authenticity is big. Um, and Andrew is very, very authentic. And one of the speeches he gives, I, I, which I thought was the most powerful, he gave it at the um, Liberty and Justice Forum in Iowa. He said, uh, he, and he gave it as a close at one of the debates. He said, our kids are not all right. Um, and by the numbers, they're not. And every parent feels it where they, you see their kids getting addicted to smartphones. You see climate change coming down the pike. You see student loan, the cost of college going up. You see the job opportunities getting tighter and tighter. Um, and you're not sure what to do. And you feel like the country you're leaving your kids is going to be worse than the one that you had. And that's true in the numbers. But it's also true in this feeling. And Andrew, for some reason, seems to be the only one talking about it. Like Donald Trump's president today... There's a number of factors, but one of the biggest one is we blasted away millions of manufacturing jobs in all the states he won. Um, and then if you look at what's coming down the pike, what's happening in the future, the top five jobs in the United States are all going to be in a similar situation that we had for manufacturing. You're looking at retail and call centers and truck drivers, fast food workers. I mean, that's in addition to manufacturing, that's half of the United States economy. And if you even just assume a very conservative, like 10% of that gets blown up, um, we've got catastrophe on our hands. And no one wants to talk about it. We like to talk that we can retrain. We like to talk about Donald Trump as the cause of all of these problems. He's a symptom. He's a symptom of the fourth industrial revolution, of a declining ability of our government to, to solve these problems. And we got so desperate that we bet on a narcissist reality TV star and the problems aren't going away if we get them out. It's why, look, we support impeachment, but we think it's a loser because um, it doesn't, one, doesn't solve the problems. And two, <laughs> most of the country isn't shocked when Donald Trump does terrible things. Um, so talking about it more is just giving him more airtime. The way to beat Donald Trump, we believe very strongly, is to present a positive vision that more Americans can get behind. Um, and I thought, I'm a Democrat, I thought that's what... Democrats are supposed to be fighting for the little guy whose community gets blasted out by automation and um, who's, you know, seeing Amazon, who's paying more taxes than Amazon, who's a trillion dollar tech company, who's seeing our life expectancy decline, who's seeing opioid addictions rise and see suicides and drug doses go up while corporate profits are super high. Our quality of life is declining at a rapid rate. So that's what we should be focused on to beat this guy and be really honest about it. So Donald Trump is extremely authentic. <laughs> whether, whether, you know, whether he's lying or not, um, you, know, you feel like you know what you're getting with him. It's why he eats politicians for breakfast, because he can just say whatever he wants. And you feel like he, do, he does mean it at the time, even though if he's not telling the truth. So one of the things we focused really, really hard on is keeping him authentic. 
you know, he plays by a different set of rules. And I think the rest of the political world is not caught up. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about debates. Uh, so first, this you've been on all the debates until the one this week. So whether or not, you know, the rules are correct, let, let's leave that aside. Will it be damaging to you in Iowa on February 3rd that you weren't on that stage? Is that overblown a little bit? Talk about how you guys assess the practical effects of not being on the stage for the first time. So I, I will say this is that I think the rules, and I don't want to talk about the I think the rules have been fair and clear, right? And I'll credit the DNC for being very transparent. What has been frustrating is, so for us, it's like, okay, there's a rule. We're the math, logical, entrepreneurial candidate. How do we clear that benchmark? What has been hard for us is there just purely was a very, there just were not enough polls just in terms of volume, very few. Um, so you end up riding at your seat for one or two polls, and that's never a way to Never a good way to operate a campaign. So we commissioned our own polls independently um, and found that we'd qualified. DMR had us there. So we, we believe we should have been there. And we think it's a disservice um, and a disappointment for Iowa voters who see this on the cover of the Des Moines Register in sixth place and growing, um, but don't get to see him debate in Iowa, hosted by the Des Moines Register. <laughs> but to answer your question, the crowds don't seem to care um, because we've had some of the biggest crowds we've ever had um, the past week leading up to it. And I believe the reason is because we have the resources to talk to voters. We have the resources to go on TV and go on mail and Canvas and phone bank and text bank and do events. And this race is going to heat up. Andrew Yang is going to be in all these states. So we feel good about our ability to talk to voters despite not being on the debate stage. The other thing is debate viewers have been declining. And we knew this. We've known this for a while. And one of the things we did, I believe it was September in Houston, where we said, okay, there's 10 people on the stage. No one's going to care what we say. You know what we should do? We should just make as much news as possible. So we said we're going to give away 10 freedom dividends. And the pundits laughed, but what happened? We raised $2 bucks and got 500,000 email addresses and qualified for the next two rounds. So we believe the problems in America are much deeper than can be sound. Um, you know, solved in sound bites with a crowded debate stage. Um, we believe that voters realize this. Are we disappointed to not be there? Of course. Will it hurt our campaign? Um, well, it's less than ideal, but I do think we're going to be able to talk to voters in a real way over the next three weeks um, and feel good about the direction we're going in Iowa and New Hampshire. No, I think the, the people that will ultimately be part of that surge and turnout in Iowa and even New Hampshire you know, are probably not sitting there, you know, for two hours watching the debate. I think that's, that's right. <laughs> of course not. Um, and, and some of the debates, we, we don't speak for the first 30 minutes. <laughs> no. Well, let, let's talk about the debates for a minute. So I'm, I'm curious, both from your standpoint and Andrew Yang's standpoint. So one thing that has struck me is the debate questions and the dialogue. I think, you know, Andrew Yang has, you know, dutifully tried to f- sort of fight his way in both into the debate, right? But to to talk about some of the economic challenges, challenges of automation and AI, but those haven't really been direct questions that have been asked. I mean, are you guys surprised? I mean, you're running for the the most important and powerful office in the history of the world at a time, you know, you've talked about some of the economic challenges. There's also similar questions around the future of warfare and some of the moral questions around AI. It just seems like the big questions um, that you'd want a president to be really working on and noodling on and preparing for aren't part of the debate. So I'm, I'm curious how surprised you guys have been just about the types of questions and the debate discussions that have happened to date. Oh, man. That's a good question, David. <laughs> I will say it's been frustrating in that 
we'll go almost entire debates and not talk about the economy once. Like, come on. 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck right now, right? Like, more than half can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. Like, the country's in crisis by any objective measurement. And to go on that stage with the leaders of the party and not talk about the economy and split hairs over stuff like most of the Democrats agree upon is really frustrating. And it's one of the reasons Andrew's done well, because he's talking about what voters care about. Not that, and I don't mean to dismiss like how important climate change is. Of course, it's important. Healthcare is extremely important. But we all know, particularly a Democratic Party, that whoever is a nominee is going to do a better job on healthcare and a better job on climate change and a number of democratic issues than the current administration. Um, and no, most of that stuff we agree upon. But fixing the economy is a really important topic to discuss. It's what Donald Trump talks about all the time. It's what Democrats should be talking about and presenting a, a vision that works for the Americans that are suffering, that voted for Donald Trump and are looking for an alternative. So we, yes, 100% agree. It's been one thing particularly in like the first couple of debates, we're trying to get Andrew to like force the topics in. But it sets us up for failure, frankly, in the general election if we don't have a, a candidate that can speak eloquently about the future of the economy. So as you've spent a bunch of time in these early states primarily, talk about the difference between the questions you get from the attendees at the events and the questions you get from the media in these debates. Oh, man. I'll tell you this. Not to pile on, but I, I do think it's an important delta. It's extremely important. One of the most... So I'll tell you this. We've done hundreds of town halls now, if not thousands. Andrew's not gotten one question on impeachment. Not one. Like, that's that's the disconnect. Yet, what is the recurring line and that you're seeing on cable news? It's all about impeachment. But what do we get questions on? The economy, healthcare, climate change, the big three. I mean, you get some, you get a lot of education, but there's, there, and a lot of these things are linked. But if Andrew does his stump speech, then the, the top two questions are usually more about healthcare and more about climate change. And so I think the debates have focused on healthcare. That's exciting. But focusing on impeachment, um, focusing on the daily tweet of Donald Trump of the day, it may be good for ratings, but it's not good for the American voters. Most, most Americans are, are fatigued. You know, they're tired. So... We as a party have to present a positive vision. It's why, why we're in this. You know, it's like we need to present a positive vision for the United States and the Democratic Party and win over Trump voters. We need to win them over. Um, and there was a poll where I'm excited. There was a poll in New Hampshire, Swing State, but there's a number um, that said that more than 10 percent of Trump supporters would vote for Andrew Yang. Um, and I think it, another one was 18 percent of college Republicans would vote for Andrew Yang over anybody. That's the kind of messaging we need to do as a party. If we go, I believe if we just go like my way to the highway, Democrat, hope for the turnout game, it's a risky play. I think we need to reach across the aisle and present a different vision that includes not just Democrats and progressives, but also independents, disaffected voters, libertarians, and even some Republicans um, to beat this guy. Well, you guys believe in math, as do I. I mean, the truth is this is such a silly debate even if you wanted to have it, because the math is such that if Trump um, does really a good job of registration and turnout, and he will, just his raw vote number in all these battleground states is going to be so high that we have to do it all. You know, yeah, we've got <laughs> yeah. to do more registration and turnout. Yes. But we're going to have to do a lot of great persuasion. We're going to have to find 
uh, people who who haven't voted in a long time, if at all. So it's just it's it's dangerous to me because if if you look at at the, uh, I think his raw vote numbers are going to grow pretty considerably in most of these battleground states. It's what they're oh, focused yeah. on right now, and, and I think doing a very good job of. So it drives me crazy. So I'm curious. Andrew Yang um, brings a lot of sobriety to you know the challenges our country faces. Right? He's he doesn't duck hard questions or truths. He believes in math. That being said, it seems, at least from the outside, like he's having an absolute ball on the campaign trail. <laughs> Why, talk about that a little bit. I mean, is that consistent, by the way? I know you're not going to you know, tell us your boss is not consistent in that way. He's always having it. But I'm just curious. Like, <laughs> He seems to bring a joy to the campaign trail, and I'm wondering, do you think that's a reason that you guys are growing a little bit, or is, or is it more policy? I'm just curious because you know, I'm sure all the candidates, uh, you know, are out there trying to have a good time, but he seems to really be having the time of his life. <laughs> I w- we are having fun. It was Ray, Ray Buckley is the chair of the uh, New Hampshire Democratic Party, said this to me on our first visit in New Hampshire. He's, and Andrew's like, any advice you have for, for me as I run? And he said, well, people can always tell if you're not having fun and it's, it's toxic. So make sure every doing is having fun. And so Andrew's very insistent on that, that we better have fun, do events that are finding fun and people can, you know, feed off your energy. So we, um, we try to have fun. We try to let him have fun. Um, I will say this, like, and he knows this too. We talk about this, like running. I used to think, I don't know if you ever thought this too. I always thought running for president, like an ego exercise, you know, where it's like, oh, this is, it's like my time and you go get, you know, put yourself in the spotlight. It's the exact opposite. Running for president is grueling. <laughs> it's embarrassing many times. Your ego gets beat up all day long. Um, so we, I think it's a good counterweight to that to make sure we're having fun. And this doesn't have to be miserable. It doesn't have to be hate-fueled. It can be fun. It can be positive. Now, that said, like it's one of the things we did branding-wise, David. It's like, what is his message? One, on one hand, it's very dark. We're going through the greatest economic transformation in history of our country. The future of work is no work. The robots are coming. I use splice that anyway, but like the jobs are going away. Very dark, very long form, very like in the weeds specific. To balance that out, he's the $1,000 a month guy. He wants to give everybody $1,000 a month and rewrite the rules of the economy. There's there's more detail to that, of course, but that is like a fun like carrot, right? Um, so... When what we when we started, we started with these podcasts, just like we're doing now, like these long form conversations to get into the guts of what our message is. But also, we leaned into the fun, like the memes aspect. And he's very memeable, and it's a big way to talk to younger voters in particular, and anyone on social media. To have this, like, is this fun? Is this super serious? And reality is, you just have a very interesting, unique messenger that people want to be around and want to listen to more. Um, so short answer, David, we're having a blast. It is not necessarily supposed to be a fun environment. So we do what we can to make it a fun environment. Um, and I hope voters see like, look, he's away from his kids. He's away from his wife. I mean, Evelyn's joining the trail a bit, but he's got two young boys. He'd rather be with them, but he's doing this because he's a parent and a patriot and doesn't like this, the future we're leaving our, leaving our country. But that said, when he can, he's going to laugh. He's going to be a human. He's going to try and have as much fun as possible. Right. Well, I think that's, you know, the truth is with Trump, you know, he's 
I think another thing that's authentic about him is I think there's plenty of days where it's pretty transparent. He doesn't necessarily enjoy being president. But oh, he yeah. He enjoys the campaigning part of it. Like He loves he his rallies. He is in his yeah. own demented way a happy warrior. He just loves it. Yeah. Uh, and I think people see that. You know, he, he wants to fight for the job and he enjoys the jousting. And I think we, we better understand that. So I'm curious, Zach. So um, you have a very untraditional background for presidential <laughs> campaign. That's manager. a nice way to put it. David. Um, <laughs> well, you're an entrepreneur. You worked in philanthropy. You did some wealth management. And so uh, clearly, given the success of your campaign, and I know you're going to give a thousand percent of the credit to Andrew Yang, but clearly um, your background and the fact that you aren't a grizzled veteran of politics ha- has worked to your advantage. But I'm just curious from your standpoint as you've done this job, so what parts of not having worked in democratic politics before, you know, as a, as a profession um, was a benefit to you because you probably weren't confined by conventional wisdom? And what have you found challenging um, and, and you've kind of had to bone up on? It's a very good question. And you probably haven't given that any thought because you haven't had time. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just sorry to put you on the no, spot. No, it's a good question. Hear you at least freestyle a little bit on it. Yeah, yeah. of course. I'll riff on it a bit. I think, um, yeah, my, the extent of my political experience was I, uh, I volunteered to try and get Mike Nifong out of the district attorney in Durham after the, the scandal in Durham. I went to, I went to Duke. So I, like, I volunteered for a day down there. That was pretty much it. But I was a public policy major. I followed this stuff. But, yeah, I came from Wall Street and um, – Helped really wealthy families give money to charity. It's how I met Andrew. And I remember the first time I, I'd known Andrew in a number of ways, but the first time I heard him drop his automation bomb, he's basically dropped all these stats and figures. And he's like, and I'm running for president. And it was like long pause, like 15 of us in the room. And we we're like, of America? He's like, yeah, of America. I was like, all right, cool. And so I would, <laughs> and I don't know what was crazier, him saying that or me being like, all right, man, screw it, I'm in. So I, I was running this nonprofit on the side and working on the job. So I quit both. And we literally started with like, team of like three or four of us in his mom's apartment for like a month as we found our first office with, you know, literally nothing. We just, just a powerful message. But what, to answer your question, this came about every problem that I think traditional campaigns would look at. We just came about at them completely differently. Um, we ran it as starting as a marketing campaign, right? Like, so I talked about the, we knew we needed to build an, ar- an army, we knew we needed to work on memes and podcasts and different alternate alternate forms of, of media, right? I would say what has been helpful is we have not had to focus on, I think, what people get distracted on in the Democratic Party. We were focused on getting Andrew's message out as many ways as possible instead of building out the full comm shop and building out the full political shop and building out the full fundraising team. Like you're building a plane while you're flying. So we're solving these problems from the outsider perspective (laughs) while it's growing. Um, So I think for us, so for example, I think a lot of people would kill to be on, like I think the traditional political mindset was to kill to be on an MSNBC or CNN in primetime. That was like the move. And we would get on those shows and it would be literally nothing for us. You'd get a couple hundred people go to your website and that was it. And we knew our message was powerful because we knew he was towing and people were really interested, but it would be nothing. But we went on Joe Rogan and 11 million people downloaded and we, we raised a million dollars in a week and launched the entire campaign, made the debate stage, hit 1% polls and grew and grew. So being able to prioritize like those types of earned media hits and the types of different alternative media hits, I think was one thing we brought to the table as entrepreneurs. Like we just know where the people are and know what's working. Um, we had no, like, this is how we should do things. We could care less. I think the one thing I'll say is, um, I'll give you an example, and this maybe is a riff. So when we first started, 
we started getting popular. And then we, we grew from the internet. And the internet's a very dark place, as you probably understand, David. And so you have these, like, you have trolls and people saying mean things. And um, we, basically, I had staffers, I had a staffer literally get, like, doxxed online. People put her phone number on, on there. And it was, it was not a fun time for the campaign. And people were asking us to basically denounce certain things or say things are bad or trying to navigate how do you, how do you rein in the crazy internet, right, for good? How do you create it into a Yang gang that's wholesome and not this, like, psycho situation? And one of the things we did, a lot of the experts were telling me you need to denounce and say, call this bad and this good and this sort of thing. And one of the things we did really well is we said, we're not going to draw this black and white lines. What we're going to say is, like, these are our values, Humanity first values. This is what it means to be humanity first. We believe in forgiveness. We believe in truth. We believe in integrity. We believe in not left, not right, but forward. We believe in the numbers and the math. We put out what our humanity first values were. And then if people didn't live up to those, we were able to kick them out of our Facebook groups. We were able to kick them out of our Reddit groups. And instead of saying, that's bad, that's good, that's bad, it's saying, this is what we stand for. And if you're not standing for these, you're not part of it. And that is a non-political way to look at a problem like this. And it's kind of the things we brought as entrepreneurs and people understood the internet. Yeah, it's very unique. Um, so that that's like one example. And then the, answer, the hardest part is um, leveling up very quickly and then learning who to trust. Keeping the balance, right? Keeping the good energy of being an entrepreneur and being an outsider and thinking differently, but also balancing with like, hey, man, this is how the Iowa caucus works, right? Like, these are the expertises you need, right? Um, right. <laughs> like, I hate Delegates, this. Delegates, <laughs> caucuses. Yeah. 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 And like there's this – and you've probably seen this a bit – um, where people have this from the outside coming in or like, oh, I'm going to disrupt politics, you know, or they're like, oh, I'm going to, I have, a, I mean, we have a lot of support in Silicon Valley. People are like, we're going to tech disrupt the heck out of this thing. You guys need to do this X, Y, Z. And like some of that is interesting, but at the end of the day, we're getting people to either show up on caucus night or they're going to pull a lever in New Hampshire, right? Like it's like, there's very, there's, there's certain amounts of data you need, but there's, there's a reason politics is politics, right? It's still people. It's still person to person. And so finding that balance of being creative and smart um, and out of the box, but also like <laughs> there's a reason politics, like there's a reason there's people that work in this space and they know how things work. Um, so building that team while flying, building a plane while flying has definitely been a challenge. And I'll give credit to Andrew. He has stayed true to his message, to who he is. Um, has never tried to be anyone he's not, um, and that carries down to the staff as well. Well, I, I agree with you. I think there are a lot of interesting ideas about quote-unquote disrupting politics, and a lot of them would work if we didn't have this unfortunate thing called voting. Um, <laughs> you know, if it was just kind of an ongoing marketing campaign, um, you know, that involved everybody, as opposed to yeah, no, it's it, it, that's kind of where these things come in conflict. Well, listen, Zach, you were great to take some time away from you know, the 99 counties of Iowa to, to spend time with us. I think you're in Polk County today, but uh, good luck in the close here. And I think win or lose, I think um, our party's got a lot to learn from what you guys have built. Some of that's, you know, completely just authentic and I think available to Andrew Yang. But I, I think some of your approaches here, you know, would be worth studying pretty carefully because it's going to take all that and more to, to get Trump out of the White House. So, so good luck here over the next few weeks in Iowa and, and, and beyond. Well, thank you, David. And if I look, we're in it to win it. But if there's things we've done that can help our party and believe we have. But if there's things we've done that can help our party, um, we will be behind the nominee to get this guy out of there and, and put this country back on the right track. So congratulations on what you do and what you're building. This is incredible. I'm honored to be here. Um, 
if you come to Iowa, you'll know you'll know where to find us. I think it's publicly available. So <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully you don't have to come in the winter. But if you do, uh, would love to see you, David. Well, I used to live there for a long time. Love it, and I know that uh, <laughs> at the end of your schedule, when the last event's done, you'll be at a Pizza Ranch, wherever is uh, nearby, right? So uh, I will be at Pizza Ranch. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, man. Hang in there. Thank you, sir. Good talking to you. See you, Zach. Well, fascinating to hear from Zach Rauman about the Yang Gang and uh, what they're building out there. Um, I thought a few things were, were striking. You know, one, they clearly believe that they can, in Iowa and elsewhere, you know, turn out a bunch of people that probably aren't on any campaign's radar. So, you know, we'll know soon enough whether they can do that, but that clearly is is going to be quarter their strategy. Really interesting to hear from him, both from Andrew Yang's perspective, obviously, who's an untraditional presidential candidate, and Zach, untraditional campaign manager. While there were some challenges with that, you know, learning about caucuses and delegates, you know, a lot of a lot of strengths came from the fact that um, you know they were not bound by conventional wisdom or how they had done things in the past. And I think one of the reasons that they've really been able to defy expectations is. You know, they kind of made it up as they went along and used their background in business and, and the nonprofit sector. So really fascinating. And, and I hope some of the lessons they've learned in terms of how to communicate, uh, the types of voters they're able to reach, um, whether they're the nominee or not, I, I hope our, our party uh, is listening carefully and will utilize their expertise and, and some of their learnings. Fascinating discussion about debates. Obviously, they're frustrated they weren't in the debate this week. Um, don't think it'll have a meaningful impact from their standpoint um, in the race. We'll see if they're right about that. Uh, but also some frustration about the debates themselves and you know some of the bigger challenges facing the country have not been front and center, So, uh, which I heartily agree with. I'd, I'd love to see these candidates think more and really have to go deep uh, beyond talking points and, and even beyond the challenges of today to you know, where we're going to be 10, 15, 20 years from now because a president needs to factor that in. They can't just make decisions based on where we are today. Good presidents think about about where we're heading. So I thought that was that was fascinating. And really interesting to hear that, you know, they, they do have staying power. So kind of almost regardless of how they do in Iowa, they're one of the few campaigns that are just going to keep marching on uh, regardless of that because they've got money and they've got enthusiasm. Now, at some point, you know, if they come in fifth or sixth place, in the first four states, I think even Andrew Yang could begin to see some of that ability to raise money and, and, and get people to, to do grassroots organizing diminish. But uh, they clearly think they could have something special going in in New Hampshire. So I think that's really for Andrew Yang. Um, you know, Maybe that means a top three finish or a strong fourth. But I think if they don't do that, even if they come in fifth in Iowa uh, or sixth in Iowa, um, you know, if they're not able to kind of, I think, jump two or three places, uh, I think they may find uh, some difficulty. So, um, but but they clearly think they have something special in New Hampshire potentially that they could tap into. So that will bear for those of you supporting Andrew Ewing. I think that really is going to be uh, such a critical moment. Can he, um, you know, overperform expectations in New Hampshire at least, you know, based on where they are today? So uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, we're obviously uh, uh, less than three weeks away from Iowa. So um, every day, the people who are so important to this process, whether you agree that Iowa should play the role or not, uh, this time they are. Um, you've got you know hundreds and hundreds of people every day, if not uh, thousands, you know making their firm decision. And so that's what the campaigns are trying to do: is is make their case and and close the sale with these folks, and not just in terms of saying I support you, but being willing to brave the cold and the long lines and and going to a location for an hour, an hour and a half. 
uh, on Monday night, February 3rd. So um, we'll, we'll obviously each episode between now and I will be spending more and more time on that, uh, both to enhance your understanding of it, but also understand uh, what's happening in the race, which is a very fluid race. We have 60% of the people in Iowa today who either say they're currently supporting a candidate but could change their mind here in the closing weeks or undecided. So uh, a massive, massive amount of uncertainty, I think. Um, and this thing could, could change quite a bit, you know, over the next few days and weeks. So look forward to being on that journey with you.